I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. In my daily life, I was a quiet, introverted man, not particularly pushy. From this moment onwards, your name is Anton Kunzla. You'd better start getting used to it. I met many of the Holocaust survivors, and most of them cannot sleep at night. And there was a knock at the door. All the men line up outside. And the machine gun was. Ta, 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 I remember the, the sound. Innocent lives are always at stake. My main goal was to fight against the Nazi murderers, to abolish the Statue of Limitation in Germany. I heard the names of their friends, of their collaborators. They used to come to the house. It was kind of silly because he was wearing a leather jacket. When he turned around to open the door, he had a pistol poking out of his back pocket. The Brazilian government knew these allegations. Nothing was ever done to bring him to judgment. I saw this mountain from afar. Monte Videoeo, he cried, meaning I see a mountain. And I think that in the end, the smell of the corpse guided him to the house. This is true. He had nightmares as far as I remember myself. There was not a single night that passed quietly for him. For his suspicions that something is wrong with his non-Austrian businessman or out of nowhere appeared in his life with the promises for a golden future and uh, uh, excellent business. A few episodes ago, I started asking listeners for questions. 
things you didn't hear in the podcast and were curious about, or other stories the podcast got you thinking of. Many of your questions prompted me to do new research, and I really liked that. So I'm going to spend this entire episode answering your questions and digging deeper into the issues that you brought up. We got some amazing questions from all over the world. My name is Johanna, and I'm listening from Toronto, Canada. Hi, my name is Mark Lazarus from Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, hi, my name's Rob Timisvari. I'm from Maitland in New South Wales, Australia. Hello, I'm Elijah Theory. I'm from Spokane, and I'm 15. Some of them were from families of Holocaust survivors. My grandmother escaped Nazi Germany. For someone like me, history, specifically World War II and the Holocaust, in a sense, it, it, it's very close to home. Hi, my name is Leah. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. My parents were teenagers when they were in the camps. The sporadic nature of the butcher, how he would just simply turn up and then, you know, execute someone. That is in the story of what my grandpa told. It was a very similar experience. And a lot of them made me think about aspects of Mossad's Zucker's mission that hadn't really occurred to me. Was this sort of process or document used because of legal, judicial, or Mossad internal policy reasons? Did the Mossad allow families of these monsters to continue living in luxury? There was even one from a guy who worked with a soldier with a very shady past. There I I met and worked with a stocky German guy that I was told by the locals had been a member of the SS. Over the next few months, Gunther and I became friends. So thanks to everyone who emailed us. I really appreciate your interest. I'm Stephen Talty, and this is Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. You made a comment that really just kind of sent chills down my spine. My friends and I love the podcast, and it has sparked a lot of debate amongst my friend group. I am just really curious to understand how people would claim that he's innocent. I remember I literally paused the podcast, took off my headphones, and I was just gobsmacked. Buy movies. Oh, those are cool, but I didn't think anything like that like happened in real life. Having discussions over family dinners, so it's, it's been a great, great ride. Episode 12, New Questions and Conspiracies. So, on to your questions. The first one comes from James McGinnis. I'd like to know... What's the background of the family of the butcher? How did they take the living with such a guy? Were they accepting of who he was? Were they loving of this guy? Were they afraid? Were they just a general background of how they grew up with this person? Thanks. I was curious about the same thing, James. I did find one news article in a Latvian newspaper from before the war. It talks about Zuckers being arrested for publicly whipping one of his sons, and it condemned him for being so brutal to one of his own children. There aren't a lot of details in the story, but apparently he became angry at the boy and started beating him. So it's clear Zuckers had a serious temper, and the article indicates it was turned on his family at least once. But to be fair, after his death, Zuckers' family defended him to the end. They did interviews in the Brazilian press talking about his good qualities, 
how he was a loving father and a patriot. They talked about the pain of his execution and how they felt an innocent man had been targeted. It's clear that the assassination was a deeply traumatic experience for them. So to answer your question as best I can, I think his family did love him. They were certainly very loyal to his memory for decades afterward. Hope that answers the question. On to the next one. Hiya, my name is Johanna and I'm listening from Toronto, Canada. My friends and I love the podcast and it has sparked a lot of debate amongst my friend group. And we've settled on two questions that we couldn't quite answer ourselves. The first is, did East Germany have a statute of limitations for Nazi war crimes? The book and the podcast focus a lot on West Germany, and because my friends and I are a bunch of history majors, we've read a lot about Nazis having a place in East German government, which kind of speaks to how denazification was attempted in West Germany, and top-ranking officials had escaped it. Perhaps to the DDR? Nazis having Foskamma seats very likely would influence Nazi legal standings. So did the DDR have a statute or any punishment for Nazis at all? And did that punishment have a time limit? The second is if Mossad had a presence, noticeable or not, in East Germany. And if they tried to sway Israeli DDR or really Israeli USSR relations through espionage. Thanks so much. We're really enjoying the book as a group right now. And the podcast is fantastic. Thank you so much, Ibn Karaj. Hi, Johanna. Really good questions. Thanks. The East German part of the story is really interesting. East Germany was under the control of the Soviet Union at the time, and their response to the Nazi question was often purely political. They did not recognize the 1871 statute of limitations when it came to Nazi crimes. And in fact, they played up the failure of West Germany to prosecute Nazi atrocities that had happened during the war. So the West German statute of limitations became a weapon, a tool for East Germany and the USSR. It was the Soviet Union's position that they had been the key to defeating the Third Reich, and they had been far harsher on Nazi criminals than governments in the West had been. There was truth in both of those claims, and the USSR used that wedge very effectively to embarrass the West. They claimed the moral high ground when it came to ex-Nazis. They carried out some show trials and would occasionally release the file of an ex-Nazi living in the West who'd done horrific things, simply to gain an edge in the Cold War. But after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it became clear that East Germany hadn't been as forthcoming as it could have been. Researchers found a huge number of files on Nazi criminals that the East Germans had never released for various reasons. Those files could have led to many more prosecutions of killers and torturers. So even though East Germany claimed to be the more righteous, it turned out that they had just as many skeletons in the closet as West Germany did. As far as Joanna's second question, did Mossad have any presence in East Germany? The answer is little to none. The two countries never had diplomatic relations, and they never exchanged ambassadors or maintained embassies in each other's countries. Berlin was a hotspot for American and British spies. That's where John le Carré's first novel was set, but much less so for Mossad. The main issue for the Israelis was probably that East German politics were largely being directed from Moscow. So why not do your spying in Moscow? East Germany and the other satellites weren't where the action was for Mossad. 
they had much more pressing issues to address than what was happening on both sides of the Berlin Wall. Another question that arrived by email. Hi, my name is Jason Friend from Virginia in the United States. I have a question about Mio and other spies living in Europe. How would they keep their cover in a place like Paris without the French government knowing? Or did they know? Yeah, perceptive, Jason. Let me start with the second part and then work back. Basically, do countries know that their allies are spying on them? They do. The basic rule is that a spy living in a friendly country is supposed to only have contact with his counterparts. That means a CIA officer living in London is allowed to have lunch with an officer from MI6, the British spy agency. They're also allowed to have joint operations with friendly spy agencies. If the two countries have a similar objective in mind, they might partner up on a mission. But that's where things are supposed to stop. You're not supposed to conduct espionage on your allies. But of course, governments do. All the time. Right now, my country, the U.S., is spying on several of our closest allies, including France and Germany and the U.K., and they're spying on us. We want to know what their governments are planning in counterterrorism, in technology, in trade. Not what they're saying publicly, what they're actually planning on doing. Now, as far as the first part of Jason's question, how did Mio and the others operate in France? Often spies work under the cover of a diplomatic mission. Embassies are hotbeds for intelligence officers who have a fake title and a fake job that allows them to spend most of their time on espionage. But Mio and the others did not have diplomatic cover. They were simply Israeli citizens who'd gotten visas to stay in Europe. So they had to lie low, pretend to be ordinary business people or visitors who love Paris so much that they decided to live there. Whether the French government knew about their activities, that's a fascinating question. Most spy agencies direct their counterintelligence efforts at their enemies. Keeping track of agents from your allies isn't a top priority, unless they screw up in a spectacular way and embarrass themselves, or if they steal a major military secret or piece of hardware. Then all bets are off. Friends then have to act like enemies, and spies are sometimes expelled from the country in question. My best guess is that Yariv and the others kept their heads down, obeyed the laws of France, and had basic covers as some kind of businessmen. France had bigger fish to fry in the mid-60s. I doubt they were overly concerned about a few Mossad agents using Paris as a base of operations, so long as they kept under the radar. The next question came in by email from Garrett Davies. Hi, Stephen. I just had a question regarding the statute of limitations in relation to Zuckers, which you may be able to shed some light on. I was wondering why the German law would apply to Zuckers, even though he was a Latvian citizen. Could he still not have been prosecuted in his home country? That's a great point. I've often wondered why Mossad chose a Latvian to go after instead of a German. After all, it was the Third Reich that triggered the Holocaust, not the Latvians or the Lithuanians or the Poles. So why target Zuckers, a guy from this small country that didn't play a big part in the war? 
In my research into the possible targets for the mission, their nationality never came up. It was always about two things, the seriousness of their crimes and the ability of Mossad to locate them quickly. But I do think their nationality played a part. Think about it. If Mossad went and assassinated a German, what would that have done to public opinion in Berlin and elsewhere? Killing someone's countrymen, even if he's done horrible things, is never popular. If Mossad had assassinated a prominent German, they probably would have doomed the mission. There would have been a huge public backlash. And it would have affected not only the statute of limitations, but a whole range of issues between Germany and Israel. War reparations, trade, the list goes on and on. My theory is that it was just too dangerous, too counterproductive to go after a German. The bad news for Zuckers was that Latvia wasn't a powerful nation. In fact, after the Soviet annexation of the country, Latvia didn't even exist in 1965. So the consequences for killing a Latvian would be much less severe. You could illustrate to Germans the kind of monsters that were still out there without actually killing one of their citizens. It was the best of both worlds. My name is Cameron. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I actually got so impatient following along that I ended up buying the book. Mio and the team seem to have a formalized judgment document or speech or some sort of written piece that they intend to read to Zuckers at his execution. It's betrayed as a sort of all-encompassing legal document that functions as the predetermined outcome and opinion of judge, jury, and executioner. Was this sort of process or document used because of legal, judicial, or Mossad internal policy reasons? Who wrote the judgment? And at what point in the government decision-making process is this judgment made and written out? Like, did the high-level government officials that named Zuckers for execution write this? Did Mossad? Or did Mio or Yariv themselves write it? Was this a common occurrence in Mossad operations or in government or state-sponsored assassinations at the time? Was it a formality or a requirement? And was this done for non-Nazi-related Mossad operations, like those against the plotters of the Munich Olympic attacks in 1972? Did the document have legal ramifications in Israeli, Uruguayan, or Brazilian international law? Thanks for any responses. Thanks, Cameron. I had never actually thought about that part of the mission, and it's a tough one to answer. Mossad is usually a bit of a black box. It's very secretive, as are most spy agencies. Hard to tell who did what. So I'm not sure who wrote the verdict. I suspect it was someone at Mossad, maybe even Yosef Yariv, who was the head of the unit carrying out the operation and had the responsibility for all of its tactics. If Mio had written the verdict, I think he would have talked about it. So my guess, and it's only a guess, is that Yariv, as the team boss, sat down and wrote it out. As to why, I think it's clear. It wasn't for legal reasons or judicial ones. It certainly wasn't a Mossad policy. In fact, I've never heard of them doing this again in any of their other operations. It was a combination of two things, clarity and public relations. Mossad knew the body was going to be discovered. 
Of course, they wanted it to be discovered. And they wanted it known that Zuckers didn't die in a business deal gone wrong, that he wasn't the victim of some home invasion or robbery. It was important for the mission that Zucker's death be tied clearly to his crimes. The verdict would also serve as a warning to other Nazi criminals. Mossad wanted them to live in fear. The second part was public relations. Mossad knew that news about the killing would be a sensation, and they wanted the verdict to get into the news reports. The verdict was really aimed at the German public. These were the man's crimes carried out under the Nazi regime. Look at the life Zuckers was living. Look at the atrocities he committed. They were saying, something's wrong here. Zuckers and thousands of others never faced a court of justice. And if the statute passes, they never will. So it was intended to jab at the conscience of Germans and other countries who could put pressure on Germany. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
Hi, my name is Mimi. I'm from San Francisco. Um, I have a question about something mentioned in one of the early episodes about Zookers having supporters. I am just really curious to understand how people would claim that he's innocent with all the testimonials from victims that you have and have shared. Is there any evidence pointing to innocence? Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Mimi. I've had other people ask me about this, so I'm glad you sent the question in. Those who support Herbert Zuckers fall somewhere along a spectrum, I think. There are a few hardcore anti-Semites and Holocaust deniers who see the focus on perpetrators as being some kind of conspiracy. There are Latvian nationalists who say that Zuckers may have done something during the war, but nothing has been proven. And there are many people who say that Latvian suffering before and after the war has never gotten equal time with the Holocaust. So why should they spend time on Zucker's crimes when other crimes are being ignored? We talked about this a bit in episode 10. I think the big issue is the lack of a trial. Some supporters bring this up again and again. They compare it to a normal criminal case. You might have five or ten people saying that a suspect committed a crime. But those witnesses need to be interrogated. Their timelines need to be examined. And the suspect's alibi needs to be checked out. It's all the mechanics of due process that they feel are missing. And that's what makes them stop short of calling him a war criminal. There were some testimonies about Zuckers that were almost certainly exaggerated. There are stories of him impaling babies on his bayonet. And frankly, I don't believe that ever happened. Those kinds of accounts do pop up here and there among Holocaust survivors. With human nature, I think that's inevitable. A huge crime was committed, and people want to testify to how horrible it really was. For me, the many testimonies that are authentic, along with the fact that other commandos also acknowledge Zucker's crimes and his behavior after the war, makes me convinced that Zuckers collaborated with the Nazis in the murder of thousands of Jews. If you've done the research as I have, the evidence is just overwhelming. The next question comes to us from David Rochester in Surrey in the UK. My name is David Rochester, and I have been listening to your podcast, Hunting the Butcher. I've not finished it yet. Almost um, don't want it to end. It is just brilliant and, and so gripping and brutal at the same time. But one of the things that I would love to get a bit more background on is the fact that when he went to South America, he had a young girl, um, a Jewish girl with him. What happened to her? How and why was she there? But more intriguing is a bit of background on his wife because the whole thing sounds a bit bizarre that he could do that with his children and his wife and his wife is there any background at all on on their relationship because he was clearly a tough and i would assume extremely brutal individual um so so that's really what i would like to, to hear a bit more on so um thank you very much for a fantastic 
um, podcast and hopefully you will give me a response. Thank you. Bye-bye. I can answer one part of this question better than the other. Milda, Zucker's wife, is a bit of a mystery. From all accounts, she was a loyal and loving wife and at least publicly never questioned what Zucker's did. Mio, in his brief mentions of her in his own writings, describes Milda Zucker's as somewhat timid and not a strong character in the marriage. Maybe Zucker scared her, or maybe she just loved him. Maybe both. We just don't know. As for Miriam, yeah, it's a crazy story. After Zucker's was exposed as a war criminal, it seems that the two rarely spoke. I heard that her family didn't want her to be in touch with Zucker's. They didn't want her to get involved any deeper than she already was. When I wrote my book, The Good Assassin, I did get in touch with Miriam's daughter, Helga, who lived in the U.S. at the time. She told me that her mother rarely spoke about Zucker's or the war, and her guess was that it was just too painful. Miriam lost many loved ones in the Holocaust and just wanted to move on with her life. But one thing is clear. When she was called upon by Jewish leaders in Brazil, she backed up Zucker's story that he'd rescued her during the war and had hit her from Nazi soldiers. Subsequently, I uncovered an update to the story that's just wild. Helga, Miriam's daughter, actually traveled back to Latvia in 2019 to search for her family's history there. In Latvia, she met with Zucker's daughter, Antonia, and thanked the family for saving her mother. She went up to the attic in the Zucker's farmhouse where Miriam hid during the war years. One day, a passerby apparently spotted Miriam looking out the window. That sighting placed the Zuckers in danger. If the Nazis found out a Jewish girl was living there, there'd be hell to pay. It probably wouldn't have mattered that Zuckers was working with Nazi troops either. So Zuckers had Miriam dye her hair blonde and passed her off as a teacher who was instructing the Zuckers' children. That's how she made it through the war, disguised as a Gentile. So, it's complex. Miriam was clearly grateful to Zuckers. The testimony of her being kept as a kind of sex slave, she never addressed that publicly. It seems to me that she chose to remember the good things that Zuckers had done for her and to let the other stuff go. It's a choice that many Holocaust survivors had to make. Hi, my name is Leah. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. My parents were teenagers when they were in the camps. My father actually escaped and became a partisan. Uh, The only surviving member of either family was my maternal grandmother. So my question is, when they would hunt Nazis, a lot of these guys were able to sock away quite a bit of money from all the things they stole and looted, and their families lived quite well. So I wondered, did the Mossad allow the families of these monsters to continue living in luxury? Or were any of these things 
taken from them? Or were the families touched in any way? Was there any retribution in taking out any of these bastards' families? I guess that's a few questions. Thanks so much, and I love your podcast. Hi, Leah. Thanks for the question. The short answer is no. Mossad didn't concern itself with recovering things stolen from Jewish families during the war. There were just too many other things that they identified as more urgent, and that just wasn't their mission anyway. But it doesn't mean that ex-Nazis always kept the things that they stole from Jewish victims. That part of the Holocaust story has been left to the lawyers. There have been many cases of Jewish survivors or their families going to court to recover paintings or homes or other valuables. It often takes years, if not decades. But many survivors have won their cases and gotten back art worth many millions. But of course, there are thousands of cases that were never pursued and where justice never had a chance to prevail. The next and last question is fascinating. Give it a listen. In the mid-1970s, I was a young English engineer working for the Algerian national oil industry, Sonatrac, at Skita, Algeria. There, I, I met and worked with a stocky German guy that I was told by the locals had been a member of the SS. Gunter, who was in his early 60s, had a scar on the underside of his left arm. And after working with him for a few weeks, he confirmed to me that he had in fact been a member of the SS and at the end of the war, he had joined the French Foreign Legion and had been based in Algeria. After an unspecified term of service, Gunter had been given a new identity by France and could live a normal life. Over the next few months, Gunter and I became friends, although he refused to discuss his earlier life. My question is, is it true France offered SS and other war criminals immunity from prosecution in return for the service in the French Foreign Legion. I'd actually never heard about this, so I had to do a little digging. And it appears that Gunter just might have been telling the truth. Here's two things I learned in my research. The French Foreign Legion has always been popular with Germans for reasons too complex to go into here. In fact, a lot of Germans joined the French Foreign Legion before and during World War II and actually went off to fight the Nazis in North Africa. Because of this, books about the Legion were burned in German cities and towns. And the Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, even announced that young German men were being hypnotized into joining. Crazy. I had no idea that this ever happened. The second thing I learned, until quite recently, the Legion didn't require you to reveal your identity when you joined up. You didn't have to give your real name, your real nationality, or provide any papers at all about your background. The Legion, of course, became a destination for men running away from all kinds of things, bad marriages, horrible crimes, even genocide. So it's highly possible that Gunter, looking for a way out to avoid prosecution, joined the Legion under a fake name. One statistic I saw in my research, about 60% of the men in the Legion from 1945 to 1954 had German roots. Most of them went to fight for France in the First Indochina War in Vietnam. 
Over 72,000 legionnaires fought under the French flag, and over 10,000 of them were killed there. So here's what might have happened. Gunter was an SS member who needed a new life. He joins the Legion after VE Day, and most likely, he gets sent to Vietnam. He serves there under an assumed name, fighting for French interests. And after a period of three years, any member of the Legion is eligible to apply for French citizenship. That's the law. If Gunter performed well, he would easily have gotten a residency permit, and then full nationality. So if Gunter was telling the truth, it would be going too far to say that France recruited him and gave him a new identity. But it's likely that he joined the Legion under a fake name and eventually was able to become a French citizen with no record of his past on the books. Gunter found a way to wash his record clean. He escaped responsibility for the terrible things he probably did during the war. All it took, most likely, was risking his life in another deadly conflict half a world away from home. Zuckers chose an easier route. He went to Brazil, water skied, and built a business. He too came very close to escaping his past. If it hadn't been for the handful of men and women that you've met in this series, I really think he would have gotten away with it. Fantastic. Uh, I just I have to know, are you guys doing another season? I'd love for you guys to make a season two. And I think it'd be cool if you guys did it in the Vietnam War era, just because my grandpa was in the Vietnam War. I absolutely love if, if you did a season two. Season one was um, so engaging, so awesome. One question that I keep hearing is, will there be a season two of Good Assassins? And what will it be about? The answers are yes, and I'm not sure yet. We're looking at a few espionage operations that have always intrigued me, but we want to find something that's just as suspenseful and complex as Mio's operation. And then we'll do the kind of deep dive that you guys seem to appreciate. So there will definitely be a season two of the Good Assassins podcast, and you should look out for it sometime later in the year. So that's it for now. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Good Assassins Season 1 as much as I enjoyed making it. If we get more questions in, I'll be happy to answer them in a future episode. And I hope you'll keep an eye out for more spies and more Cloak and Dagger in Season 2. Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by Stephen Tolte. Produced and directed by Scott Waxman and Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Archival research by Adam Shapiro. Thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.